As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt and this episode is going to be a little bit different from normal. It's a special bonus episode where we're going to be answering our first listener email which poses a fascinating question following on from our last episode on coronavirus vaccines. And so without further ado, let's get into it. So welcome back. Thanks, John, for joining us again. Um, We're going to be trying something a little bit different for this extra bonus episode. Um, uh, A few weeks ago, we recorded an episode all about vaccines and some of the ethical challenges and dilemmas that they throw up in the coronavirus pandemic. And what we want to do today is briefly respond to a a comment and a question that's come in from one of our listeners. Um, And before we get into that, I just want to say that we're really keen to to hear from, from listeners uh, any comments and questions or partic- in particular topics that you'd like us to discuss in, in future episodes. So if, you, if you've got any ideas for that, please um, send us an email. Uh, the address is mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com. So that's mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Um, I'll have a link to that uh, on the on John's website and on the description of this podcast. So yeah, if you've got any uh, ideas for future topics or any res- anything to respond to from what you've heard that you'd like us to pick up on, please please do get in touch. Today uh, we're going to be responding to this question we have from a listener relating to our previous episode on vaccines. Um, if you haven't heard that, it's probably good to pause this and go back and have a listen. Um, I'll have a link in the description. But uh, our listener writes in and, and he says this. Um, Your pod on vaccines got me pondering about anti-vaxxers and what motivated them. Classically, people on the right have an instinctive mistrust of the government and an instinctive trust in companies and businesses, etc. Whereas the left has an instinctive mistrust of big corporations and an instinctive trust in government. The interesting thing for vaccines is that both governments and big pharma companies are integral to their production. And so both right and left should, in theory, have grounds to both trust and mistrust them. So it seems curious to me that it, that's mainly on the right that anti-vaccination has taken hold. What do you make of that, John? Yeah, no, I think it's a very interesting point. And um, I mean, historically, the uh, the pushback against vaccination, I think, has come from a, often from a kind of very left-wing, um, almost sort of natural naturopathy. You know, it, 
that that says, you know, I don't want my baby or, or my child or myself to be stuffed full with these horrible chemicals. You know, I believe nature knows best and, and nature will provide protection. And, and so it's tended to come from a, a sort of pro-ecology, left-wing nature kind of perspective. So, so it is quite unusual to hear, uh, you know, as is pointed out, that the main anti-vaxxer uh, conspiracy theories um, uh, and pushback is now coming much more from a right-wing uh, libertarian perspective. And they actually, uh, it's an interesting form of overlap, and in particular in a place like California, which is some of the where some of the biggest problems with the anti-vax conspiracy theories have taken hold. There have been cases, for example, in quite wealthy neighbourhoods in in California, where um, there have been outbreaks of diseases like measles and things like that, which have previously been well controlled by vaccination, because you might have in a preschool as many as thirty or forty percent of parents refusing to to let their children take vaccines. And this is where I think you have an interesting mixture of the kind of the libertarian free market. Don't tell me what to do from the right. That then merges with a kind of hippie California Pacific. Uh, nature knows best ecology anti kind of chemical approach from the left and they come together in this kind of unholy alliance uh, in in opposition to vaccines yeah and yet it's interesting isn't it that the the big majority I think of of people from a kind of liberal um, background and liberal perspective uh, are now very strongly in favor of uh, coronavirus vaccines and uh, you know I don't know whether your your attitude to vaccines has changed as a result. Definitely. I think I, with, along with most people, and maybe 10, 15 years ago, I didn't really ever think about vaccines and they were just something that you did as a child. And then again at school, you know, I had my, my BCG and it was painful at 13 and then you just move on with your life and there was no real controversy about it. It was quite a politically neutral topic. But as I've become more aware of the anti-vax movement and as that has grown and spread in influence and malignancy i think i have found myself reacting against it by becoming more pro-vaccine and so now i would see myself or maybe even identify myself as someone who is kind of quote-unquote pro-vaccine whereas before it was a nonsensical idea they were just a thing but it's and i think that's where you if i'm being honest you can tap into this idea of cultural war and political tribalism because i see the types of people who are anti-vaccine are groups and ideologies and philosophies that I set myself against in an identity point of view. And so I'm like, if they are anti-vaccine, then by definition, because I am not them, I must also be pro-vaccine. And obviously, there's more to it than that. I also, you know, know that the science around vaccines is settled and sound, and though the evidence suggests that they've saved millions, if not billions of lives, so that it's it's a no-brainer. But if I'm honest, I think part of the, the reason the left has become more pro-vaccine, despite, as our listener notes, maybe a historic antipathy to the big pharma companies who produce vaccines is I think is in large is a reaction against the rights um, antipathy towards vaccines. And it's interesting to ask the question, why is it that there is a, a, a strong scientific consensus in, in favour of um, the, the vaccine trials and so on, despite the fact that, you know, over the years, big pharma has had um, a lot of a, a bad reputation in, in, in some areas, and there have been various scandals, abuse, and so on. And I, I would want to say that, you know, in, in the previous podcast, uh, we talked about the, the way that clinical trial methodology has evolved, and, and the quite uh, sophisticated 
mechanisms of independent uh, data, safe, data safety monitoring committees, of peer review, and, and, and so on. Why has that whole uh, complex mechanism evolved? Answer, because of mistrust that in an earlier generation uh, there was abuse by Big Pharma and, and frankly, by some doctors. Um, so in, in the process of, of clinical trials, and, and there have been various scandals, I'm afraid, where it, it turned out because uh, pharma was, was, was offering enormous rewards to doctors for participating in their trials. I mean, in some trials, I remember uh, doctors were receiving something like ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for every patient they enrolled in the trial. And then there were scandals where it turned out that doctors had been inventing patients in order to increase their income and filling in data sheets. And so much so that, that in a previous era, there was concern that some of the published clinical trials that were in, you know, in peer-reviewed journals couldn't be trusted because of the possibility that there was major commercial fraud uh, and malpractice. And so it's precisely because of those concerns <clears throat> that the current very highly regulated and independent mechanism has developed. So so even if uh, a pharmaceutical company is ploughing millions and millions into a vaccine and into funding a trial, they are actually not allowed to play any significant role in the way the trial is being conducted. The, tr the trial is being conducted entirely by independent academics. It's being reviewed uh, peer-reviewed, and it's also being very closely monitored and reviewed by independent uh, research monitoring associations who are ultimately accountable to government. And so this whole complex uh, infrastructure has built up precisely to give trust in, in the outcome. <clears throat> and that's why I and the vast majority of other medics have high levels of confidence that if uh, eventually, uh, there's a publication that says that this vaccine is both safe and effective against COVID-19. Uh, we have high levels of confidence in, in believing that, and we will recommend it to our patients. And I think that's really the question of trust is really key here, because as our listener notes, people in general don't have high levels of trust of either big business and corporations or of politicians and government, but they do... I mean, I know anti-vax sentiment is rising, but the vast majority of people in polls say that they do trust vaccines and they, they would get their, their children or themselves vaccinated. Is that because they do trust the doctors who are administering the vaccines, even if they might not trust the corporations and the government? Well, I think there are multiple reasons for it, but I think it's certainly a very significant factor in all this is there, is, there are still, perhaps surprisingly, very high levels of trust in... Um, in doctors as, as individuals, um, so that when a patient goes to see their GP or to see a hospital specialist and they say, you know, should I receive this vaccine, you know, which has just been reported, and the doctor says, absolutely, I, I strongly recommend it that you receive it for the following reasons, uh, the default position for most people in our societies is to say, well, if the doctor is recommending it to me, I'd need strong reasons to disagree with that. And it is interesting that in surveys of different professions, um, doctors uh, routinely come near the top. I'm afraid professors come rather lower down and journalists, Tim, come pretty low down near the bottom. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but doctors are, are trusted. And 
just as a, as a, as an aside, I would just want to say that's not an accident. There's a very deep, strong historical reason why that is so. And interestingly, you can trace it all the way back to the Hippocratic Oath in the pre-Christian era, where the Hippocratic physicians were the first profession ever to, to take a solemn binding oath that we will act only in the best interests of our individual patients and we will never do anything to harm them, even if pressurised or coerced. And so right from the very beginning, the physicians promoted themselves as a, as a profession who could be trusted because they had a duty of care to their individual patient and and you know that has survived over 2000 years you know the 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 the, the joke you know and and trust me i'm a doctor ha, has a deep fundamental truth behind it which comes from this this duty of care to an individual patient indeed i've just found um, a couple of surveys from from the last few years looking at trust in the uk and different professions um, an annual survey by Ipsos Mori last year surveyed a thousand adults and the most trusted profession to tell the truth was nurses at 95% and second was doctors at 93% and only 14% of people said they trusted politicians which was the lowest ranked profession. And where were um, journalists? Um, doesn't say journalists I can't read that but unfortunately <laughs> I did find however a separate survey which said which looked at whether you think people to be trustworthy and journalists were the second least trustworthy profession of all after politicians, whereas doctors were um, the most trustworthy, with nurses second. And it's interesting, isn't it, because trust is an absolutely central feature, not just in, in medicine, but in all social interaction. You know, And one of the real concerns about the corrosive effects of populism and, and, the, and the divisions that we are seeing so... Uh, so prominently uh, spelt out in the states uh, is this corrosive sense of trust who can i trust i don't trust anybody everybody's a liar everybody is going is, is spinning and, and 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 so preserving levels of trust um, it, it is a central issue in, in a modern society things we wanted to pick up on quickly was what you mentioned in the previous vaccine episode this idea about what are sometimes called challenge trials um, and so where rather than in an ordinary trial when you're testing a vaccine you would give your um, volunteers the vaccine or the placebo and then you would send them out into their lives and you would just wait until a certain number of them had naturally uh, become infected with COVID to see if the vaccine worked a challenge trial would be where vo volunteers say you know what I'm going to I'm going to deliberately infect myself with COVID while I have the vaccine or the placebo in. Um, and we talked about some of the ethics of this. I don't know whether you saw the news, John, that they've actually, um, since we released that episode, they've actually started a challenge trial, the first of its kind in the world. Um, the UK government has launched one, um, I think, in association with Imperial University and Imperial College in London. Yes. And, you know, as we said, this is quite ethically controversial because it's all about informed consent. You know, can a volunteer uh, really give... Uh, valid informed consent when we still don't know what the long-term consequences of COVID infection might be even in a, a healthy young person and, and you know there is quite clear evidence now of this um, 
phenomenon which is which is called long covid uh, it, it probably consists of a number of different quite different syndromes but there are very persuasive uh, accounts of of relatively young fit healthy people who had covid infection early on in the pandemic in in february march april and who are still profoundly affected by um by a whole number of debilitating sy- symptoms unable to to go to work uh, unable to focus to concentrate short of breath fatigue uh, strange symptoms and so on and so i i, I think you know, we just don't know what the future will hold. It, it, it's perfectly possible that it will turn out, you know, in five years' time that uh, that a significant number of people who are infected by COVID and who apparently got better have got some kind of permanent organ damage, maybe lung damage, maybe damage to other organs, which is going to have long-term disabling consequences. So you always have to balance this unknown about the future against the benefit uh, from... Um, from accelerating vaccine development. Mm. There's a quote here from Peter Openshaw, who's an immunologist at Imperial, who's investigator on the study, and he said, deliberately infecting volunteers with a known human pathogen is never undertaken lightly. However, such studies are enormously informative about disease, and it's really vital that we move as fast as possible towards getting effective vaccines and other treatments for COVID-19. So I guess he's kind of implicitly arguing, yes, there is a, there is a risk involved here, but the potential upside of a vaccine that could save millions of lives around the world is worth it for these few hundred, potentially, maybe even less volunteers. Yes. And, and you know, as again, as we talked before, there's a very noble history in, in the history of medicine of people who have knowingly t- done extremely risky things to themselves um, in order to to benefit others. And um provided that it's fully informed and uncoerced people really know what they're letting themselves in for then i think we should welcome the fact that people are prepared to put themselves at risk for the good of others Hmm. well let's keep an eye on on how that goes it says here the trial is going to involve only about 30 to 50 participants and if it acquires ethics approval it could start um, in january in the royal free hospital in london so let's keep an eye on that Okay, we'll bring this uh, special kind of bonus reaction, comment, vaccine episode to a close. Like we said, if you have any more questions you think you'd like us to tackle or things, new stories to, and developments to respond to, please do let us know in an email, uh, mattersofliveanddeathpodcast at gmail.com. But we'll be back very soon with a new episode. Thanks very much for listening. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which is a treasure trove of resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we talk about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter. And for some of my journalism, head to tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask 
a topic for us to explore, or a news development you think we should respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. <laughs>